Welcome to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Johnny Schnitzer to talk about the Hitler Haggadah, a 1943 Judeo-Arabic Haggadah which retells the story of the Holocaust, the Second World War, and the Allied landing in North Africa through the Passover Seder. Johnny Schnitzer is a PhD candidate at Bar Ilan University with a focus on medieval Kabbalah. His dissertation is focused on the 14th century Kabbalist, Rabbi Joseph Ben Shalom Ashkenazi. And Johnny is also preparing a critical edition of Ashkenazi's commentary on Sefer Yitzirah. Johnny also edited an English edition of the Hitler Haggadah, which we're going to be talking about today. The Hitler Haggadah is such a fascinating text in many ways. Even just the title is jarring. And you might think, how can you use Hitler's name in the title of this traditional Jewish text? And it draws you in to a tremendous piece of Moroccan Jewish history that reworks the traditional Passover story to tell us about the experience of North African Jews in the Holocaust. I hope you enjoy our conversation, where we're going to dive into this text and think about how it can broaden our understanding of the Holocaust to include the Middle East and North Africa in that story, and also where we think through the important relationship between Jewish rituals and holidays with history and historical memory. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, Johnny. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much uh, for joining us to talk about your book that you edited. Thank you for inviting me. Lovely to be here. Absolutely. I think that this is such a fascinating text. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about it? You know, in other words, like, what is it that makes this Haggadah different from all other Haggadot? I think there are sort of two bombs that this text drops upon any reader, guest that, that, that sort of feasts their eyes on the Hitler Haggadah. And the first one, of course, is the title. And this is what, you know, got me interested in this from the outset. And that is this sort of chutzpahdik, this, you know, who has the chutzpah to do this? Uh, taking a Jewish text, calling it the Hitler Haggadah. That's the sort of bomb number one, because you're not even sure what this is about, who wrote this. But you know one thing, you know that the author, who is anonymous, and we'll touch upon him in a moment, takes two key words that every Jew knows. Today, every Jew does not need to Google almost Haggadah, right? Uh, Passover, Passover Eve, where we read the Haggadah, we all come and we eat together. Uh, and he takes Haggadah and he connects it to the other keyword that we all know about for a very separate, horrific connotation, that's Hitler, and he puts it together. So the first bomb is who has the chutzpah to, to perpetrate a text and give it the title, the Hitler Haggadah, taking one of the most sacred texts and connecting it to uh, one of the biggest mamzerim, if you like, in, in Jewish history. And then you open the text and you realize that our author has done something absolutely fascinating. He has done what the sages have asked us to do generation after generation, and that is to see ourselves as if we left Egypt, right? It's to reenact redemption. It's to reenact God saving the Jewish people, taking us out. And what does he do? He takes the structure of the, the storytelling bit of the Haggadah, right? On Passover Eve, we have the ceremony, we have the blessings, and then we reach the Magid section. The Magid section, the section where we are meant to Magid, we are meant to tell the story. That's what Passover is about, right? We tell a story. We tell a story of our redemption. This also explains why Passover has become 
right? This trend of everyone bringing their own Haggadot, everyone bringing their own stories, because it's all about us bringing together different pieces of the puzzle, creating this beautifully rich mosaic. So he takes the traditional structure of the Haggadah, which tells us about how we were taken out of Egypt, and it tells us about these different characters, rabbinic figures leaving 2,000 years ago that told us to do this and told us to do that. And he takes out the content and fills it with a new content whereby he tells the story of the Holocaust, of World War II, of the Allied victory of the Axis powers over Nazi Germany and uh, Hitler and Mussolini's Italy. He tells us the story of his generation. Right? So, so Rabbi Yossi Aglili, who has something to tell us in the traditional seder, something about how, how a Jew is meant to do something, all of a sudden becomes the speech of the dictator Rabbi Yosef Stalin. When we are told in the Haggadah that I, God, and not an angel, not anyone else is going to take you, the Jewish people, out of Egypt, suddenly becomes I, Charles de Gaulle. I, not Laval, not Dor, right? None of, none of the other Vichy high commanding generals, I, Charles de Gaulle, which already tells us, right? This is what's fascinating about the Hitler Haggadah. And this is the second bomb. If the first bomb is the title, we still don't know what it's about. The second bomb is when you discover that this was written by an anonymous Jew living in Rabat, Morocco, probably towards the end of 1943, as a result, possibly inspired by Operation Torch, right? the Allied operation led by the US on the shores of Casablanca and, and Algier, and everything changes. All of a sudden, this Jew living in Morocco, who has lived under a regime where there are anti-Jewish laws, Jews around him have lost their jobs. Jews around him, you can't get a Jewish education. You become, by night, a second-grade citizen. And so our author, it almost seems as if he's taking a text, which it's time to write it, when we don't yet know the ending. He doesn't yet know about the horrific six million who are being murdered. He doesn't know about concentration camps in Poland, but he knows Hitler wants to do something horrific. And he also is living in a time where his life has changed for, for some years. And as a result of the Allied victory, he suddenly, possibly, is inspired and sees, I, I get it. The Exodus, the story I meant to be telling, I meant to take the Passover Haggadah and tell the story that I see. And that's how the Allies beat the Axis powers and, and how, in fact, you know, retelling the story of Exodus, my newfangled version. Yeah, I mean, I think that the text itself is amazing in the ways in which it on the one hand, utilizes the story of Passover very explicitly, very specifically, you know, when he talks about you know, how Hitler enslaved the Jews, but also, like you mentioned, the way in which some of the characteristic aspects of the Seder, some of the traditional aspects are transfigured and transformed, you know, whether we're talking about the parable of the four sons, the four children, or the different rabbis, or the plagues, what are some of the really interesting things that are happening in this text that really are utilizing the Passover story itself and also the the characteristic aspects of the Passover Seder that people who read the traditional Seder would be familiar with, but that give it new meaning in this context. If we take right this, this idea of the four sons or four daughters, any Jewish figure that we look at and we want to understand what is at the sort of uh, heart of their teachings, you know, one of the tricks is to see if they wrote a commentary on the Haggadah what do they do with these four boys or four daughters? What do they symbolize? And in the case of the Hitler Haggadah, it takes us back in time to a sort of Moroccan viewpoint 
of the, the North African campaign. And so who is the wise son? Now, you know it's going to be an allied power, but you're not sure is it England or is it America? And you're told that the, the, the wise son is England, right? The Royal Air Force acts cleverly. He's clearly impressed. He hears through probably the resistance radio. He knows about the bombings. He knows about Montgomery. And then we move on to the Russia. The Russia we know can only be one person. That's clearly Hitler. Hitler, the evil one. He knows that he's, a, you know, he's torturing the Jewish people. And yet it's interesting that if you read through the Haggadah, we're not quite sure what's going on in Europe, right? Our author thinks that there is a concentration camp in Berlin. So we're not yet sure what's going on. The world and our author doesn't yet know, but he knows that Hitler clearly is evil, that he's plotting against the Jews, that they're wearing yellow badges, which also is interesting because we're not sure if he's referring to the yellow badges of Jews in Europe or the yellow badges of Jews in certain places in North Africa. And then who is the Tam? The Tam is interesting because Tam can both mean in Hebrew complete or sort of simpleton. The Tam is America. And then Sheino Yodelishol, and who doesn't know how to ask questions. The classic version says, you know, the fourth son is the son who doesn't know how to ask questions. The newfangled version is and Mussolini, who isn't worthy of our words. And this is very interesting because when I was speaking to Holocaust survivors, or, you know, the sort of older generation, and I, I spoke to people from Algeria, from Tunisia, from Morocco, across the board, there was a nickname for Mussolini, Khmar. He was the donkey. He was the ass. This resonates with this passage where Mussolini, our author, decides to change it and say, it's not who doesn't ask a question. It's that we don't even want to talk about him because this is a guy who's always nagging Hitler. He doesn't have a mind of his own. And he then loses the campaign. He's kicked out. In fact, this is the biggest thing. One of the highlights in the Haggadah is, so who does leave Egypt, right? If, if the idea is it's a retelling of the story, one quickly finds out that not all of the elements of the original story fit in to this story. We have a good guy, right? The allied powers, which are instead of God. In fact, at the end of the Haggadah, we are meant to say hallelujah, not to God, but to the allied powers, to Stalin, to Charles de Gaulle. Um, the bad guy we have, instead of Pharaoh, we have Hitler. But no one left Egypt, except someone did leave Egypt, and it was the Italian soldiers. It was Mussolini's fascist soldiers. And our author turns this into a joke. He says, instead of the bread that didn't rise, it was the macaroni and spaghetti that didn't have time to boil and bake. Right? He's, he's, he's turning it into a satire. And one mustn't make the mistake to think that this text is completely satirical or a parody. It's not. It's a serious text talking about serious times in Jewish history. But there's also something in my eyes, the sort of simple genius of our author, where you're describing a very tough time in Jewish history. And there's something about a little joke here, a little joke there that helps to swallow this text, helps to swallow this time in much the same way, by the way, where I can say, you know, as, as a sort of my Bubby and Zayda who are Holocaust survivors, they were in the woods, they went in concentration camps, but they were, you know, with partisans. And my father always told me that in Australia, you know, growing up, after they headed to Berlin, they were in the black market, they get to Australia, there were nights where the friends would gather and they would joke. You need to joke a little bit even about what happened back then. And the author, I think, in a very wise, simple sort of way, embeds these jokes here and there. And that's also one of the charms of this text. It's an easy text to read. It's a text that you can sort of leisurely read through. And instead of reading a book about history, about World War II and the North African campaign every 300 pages, you're warped back in time through, through this fascinating text, which in a way isn't, it's not a history book, it's a piece of history. It's one of the reasons I think, why did Anna Frank's diary become a bestseller? Because people want to understand and experience something 
through the viewpoint of a human being. And in a very different but similar sort of way, that's what I saw in the Hitler Haggadah. It was someone giving a subjective experience, albeit through a different literary work. This isn't a diary, but in certain ways, it could seem like this. And it's giving their viewpoint. And in that sense, it's one of the most fascinating, great ways to, to sort of not only learn about Jewish history, but gain a narrative that, you know, it's, it's one of these black holes in Jewish history we know nothing about. Yeah. One of the things that was particularly striking to me, in, in contrast to the traditional Haggadah, you know, in the traditional Haggadah, what you find is that Moses is not part of the story at all. And it's all about how God, you know, saved the, the people of Israel and redeemed them from Egypt. Uh, here, obviously, all of the characters are, are humans, right? And God is not really so much a part of the story here. So, like, what does something like this tell us about the experience of people going through this, this time? When we look at this as a primary source document, what are some of the things that we can learn from it as we want to think about the Holocaust, broadly speaking, and also about the experience of North African Jews in particular? This is where we need to be careful and try and gain a bit of an understanding of who wrote this text and whether this text does represent the way North African Jewry or Moroccan Jewry viewed the Holocaust. Or it, it seems apparent from the text that our author wasn't a regular shulgoer, right? He didn't go to synagogue often. I'm not sure what rabbinic background he had, if at all, uh, he or she, but assuming it's a he. But if in the original Haggadah, the traditional Haggadah, Moses is non-existent and it's God, then in the Hitler Haggadah, God is almost non-existent. He exists. He does. The angels of destruction exist, and they're the ones that get rid of Hitler and, and his gang, but it's the allied forces. It seems to me like a very a secular viewpoint, but also a very realistic viewpoint. And in that sense, we need to remember that, that at the time in Morocco, and you're talking about a very traditionalist culture, you have a mix of Jews who are very orthodox, very observant, very religious, who clearly viewed things in a different way. I think for the, the author of the Hitler Haggadah, who for whatever reason decided to remain anonymous, the take is more one of a, a secular take. It's one that's saying, look, I want to be real. Who are the ones that saved us? At the end of the day, who are the ones that, that got rid of the anti-Semitic Jewish laws in Morocco? I don't see God, he's saying. I see Charles de Gaulle. Who's getting rid of Hitler? I don't see God. I see Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin is, is, is doing the good work. And those are the people we need to say thank you to. Can you maybe tell us a bit about the story behind the text? How did you come into, into contact with it? And what was it that drew you to this text? We've talked about so many of the ways in which it's interesting, and, and I'm sure that those were some of the things that drew you to it. But can you tell us a bit about the story behind, A, the telling of this particular version of the Passover story itself? and about your involvement and the, also your collaborators who helped to, to edit, to translate, to situate this text. Like, can you tell us just a bit about the whole production and, and what it is that you want someone who reads this text to come away from when reading it, when studying it, when using it? My doctoral dissertation couldn't be further away from a text like the Hitler Haggadah written you know, around 1943 in Morocco Rabat. I spend my time in the libraries reading uh, mystical or Kabbalistic manuscripts from the 13th century. So the Kabbalists that I research, Rabbi Yosef Ben Shalom Ashkenazi, there is an idea that potentially he reaches North Africa towards the end of his days. Um, there is a lot of influence of his texts in different North African Kabbalistic texts. And so that was a sort of starting point where I got interested in North African Jewish literature in general, 
part of, of course, what I find appealing and fascinating about the case of North African Jewish literature is it's on the one hand, right, it's sort of this black hole in our Jewish education. Growing up in Israel, you know, your average Jewish education in Israel, you learn close to nothing about North African Jewish culture, history, uh, uh, rabbinic figures, and you come across a text called the Hitler Haggadah. And in many ways, for me, the Hitler Haggadah was a sort of eye-opener into what became and has become a, a couple of years, almost three years now, of a fascination with North African Jewish literature. But with this specific text, as I mentioned before, it was first the title, what is this? And then you read it. And it was fascinating because putting aside Haggadah and Passover, this was a text that, that took traditional sacred text and told you a historic story which today is very relevant in light of what I said, that you grew up in Israel, I don't know the case in North America, I assume it's similar, where you obviously, when it comes to the Holocaust, the focus is, is on Europe. So I was very interested in simply learning and understanding through the text what had happened in North Africa, the North African campaign, the Allies, the Axis powers, what happened to the Jews. Uh, but it was also then just interesting in, in part of my sort of broader research of trying to understand how does one characterize North African Jewish literature? Uh, and when I say North African, I mean there are also clearly Moroccan Jewish literature is different to Algerian, is different to Tunisian and Libyan. Although, of course, there are general characteristics. And one of them is this confluence of the modern, the modern meeting the, the traditional. We see this also, by the way, if you read Halachic Responsa, one of the fascinating things about Halachic Responsa going back to the 17th, 18th century, Algeria, Morocco is the openness. Um, attitudes towards women reading from Torah, women studying instead of marrying, uh, you know, things that today you think are sort of inventions or ideas coming out of America, uh, you have them in Morocco hundreds of years ago. What is the cultural milieu that, that allows the openness to choose a title like the Hitler Haggadah? How does this come about? And you very quickly discover that this openness is one of these characteristics and this mix between the modern and the tradition uh, that goes back for hundreds of years, but also in a genre of texts that look at what's going on in history. Uh, look at, there is a rumor that a Spanish king, King Ferdinand, is going to come. He is going to take over Morocco. He's going to conquer Morocco. And he is going to convert all of the Jews to Christianity. And guess what? It doesn't happen in the end. It doesn't happen in the end. He doesn't succeed. And you find a beautiful Megillah, right? This is one of these second Purims, which tells the story of how the Spanish king tried to come, conquer, tried to come, convert the Jews, and by miracle, it didn't happen. And then this was read in synagogues. You have a Megillah called Megillah de las Bombas. What is Megillah de las Bombas? If I'm not mistaken, it was Tangier, where 19th century, there are bombs that, again, there's a war, and there's this sort of miracle as from the viewpoint of Jews where bombs had fallen all over town, but the synagogue is saved, our neighborhoods are saved, and we write a Megillah de las Bombas. And we have written this Megillah about this current event, and we are going to sanctify this, this contemporary event by reading it in synagogue. I think that part of what you're engaging with here, and I was really taken by this whole conversation about your interest in North African Jewish history and culture in as much as it's something that people are paying more attention to now than they perhaps have in the past but it's still something that has not yet entered into the, the kind of broader public consciousness about Jewish history. But when we look at the Holocaust in particular, how does a document that you've published here, the Hitler Haggadah, help us to reframe and rethink our understanding of the Holocaust more specifically? 
as we think about how we might want to include North Africa into the story. You know, the Holocaust is not just a story about Poland and Russia and Germany, right? It's also about other parts of Europe and the Mediterranean world as well. So what does this text have to offer us as we want to think about the Holocaust and about the vast range of experiences and locations where it was taking place beyond Auschwitz? So I think as a sort of a intro to this question, right, we need to also look and understand how the memory of the Holocaust was created in Israel. And, and I just want to focus on two points as a sort of starting point to understand where Holocaust education is today in Israel, and then where that meets us today in the Hitler Haggadah. So we all, of course, know, right, 1951, there is a Knesset, a parliament meeting in Israel, and there is the question in the Knesset, how do we want to remember the murdering of 6 million Jews? And, and there are various views, right? You have the sort of more orthodox, traditional Jews that want to connect it to the sort of traditional day in which, uh, right, the 10th of Tevet, where we, you know, commemorate uh, horrific tragedies. How does Ben-Gurion, how does David Ben-Gurion want to commemorate the Holocaust? as Warsaw Ghetto Remembrance Day. Now, this might be shocking. The idea of remembering the murdering of 6 million Jews as the Warsaw Ghetto Resistance Day clearly played an important role as far as Ben-Gurion was concerned in terms of creating this sort of image of a strong young state that you don't want to mess with. And the problem with remembering 6 million Jews being you know, sent like lamb to the slaughter didn't really fit that image. Then the story evolves even more. And it evolves when you have Yad Vashem. I don't know if we're supposed to say this or not, but this is truth. Until a certain point, Yad Vashem, I think this was even a law, you, you were only basically learning about the Holocaust in Europe. You weren't meant to study what happened elsewhere. It was very, very Eurocentric. And then this connects to the final point before Hitler's Haggadah. And that is a fascinating trend, a sort of sociological, anthropological trend that Israeli society is going through. In Israel, interestingly, we've gone from a Ben-Gurion melting pot culture where we all need to sort of be this one thing that was trying to be created, this one thing that in the name of this one thing wanted to remember it as the Warsaw Ghetto Resistance Day. And we've become today what is marked more than anything, I think, by a speech given by President Ruby Rivlin a few years ago, the sort of the, the speech of the four tribes, the idea that we are a multicultural society. And in Israel... Is it a place today, perhaps, you know, best described, I think, as sort of ready to embed these different parts of our identity, which haven't been there before? And in that sense, going back to your question, if one tries to understand or discuss what it means today to be Jewish and what Jewish identity is, clearly the generation we are living in, the Holocaust is still a big part of that. And even the story and the narrative of the Holocaust in Israel is slowly changing. And that, I think, is where we meet today the publication of the Hitler Haggadah and the understanding that if we try to publish the Hitler Haggadah as we have today, 20 years ago, I don't think it would be reaching the, the sort of mass market, the shops it's reaching today in Israel because the public wasn't there yet. Something has happened to Israeli society, this sort of shift from, and now I'm shifting also in terms of global Jewry. And today, I think more than ever, there's an acceptance and understanding that there are narratives beyond each and every one of us. Our Jewish identity, as you mentioned before, is based upon 10 to 20% by and large of our own personal geography, right? In my case, if it was Rohatin, Brozdovich, uh, your, you know, someone else's case, Nikolaev, someone else, Maknes, someone else, Baghdad. And today, I think something has changed in the Jewish world. And now I'm going sort of, you know, beyond just Israel. And that is an understanding that 
that the narrative and the identity, the Jewish identity that we are trying to build is meant to be based upon a unified narrative or narratives, which are not only where our parents and grandparents come from, but also where our neighbors' parents and grandparents came from. And that, I think, is where the Hitler Haggadah is sort of just in time, in the sense that we're there. And so going back to the question of the Holocaust, if it's still a very big part of what it means to be Jewish and Jewish memory, then the Hitler Haggadah, surely you can't compare the story in North Africa, but that's not the point. The point is it comes as a result of years of being told only one story, not only regarding the Holocaust, but in general regarding rabbinic Jewish literature, Jewish responsa, customs. Think of in Israel in recent years, we celebrate now Novigod, right? Novigod, the new year in former Soviet Union, right? Under communism, you couldn't have Christian holidays, you couldn't have religious holidays. So there was Novigod. Novigod is the sort of a communist idea of a new year. So all Jews that came from former Soviet Union in Israel for years remained in silence. And we're talking in the 90s, not so long ago. We're not talking now Ben-Gurion. For years remained in silence in terms of their culture. And today, something interesting has happened. If you ask any Jew on the street, have you heard of Novigod? Nine out of 10 will say I've heard of it. Because it's suddenly becoming something that we want to understand. We want to even celebrate culturally and embed into our own culture and narrative other histories. And so in that sense, I think the Hitler Haggadah, more than being about the Holocaust, albeit an important lesson to learn and an important piece of history that we don't know much about, right? If you ask me what I envision, what I hope for, it's that in schools, in Israeli schools, in American schools, you can learn the Hitler Haggadah because it's a great way to learn a narrative of the Holocaust that no one knows about. You know, a prism through which we can learn about what happened in North, in North Africa. There's a lot to unpack and think about because just to list off some of the aspects that, that you were really emphasizing, uh, you were talking about the transformation of Holocaust memory in the state of Israel. You're talking about the transformation of the social and cultural existence, the transformation of Jewish life in Israel in social and cultural terms. You're talking about historical narratives and memory. Like as you talked about this idea of, of the focus on the on the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in early Israeli Holocaust memory. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why Ben-Gurion and, and other Israeli leaders of the time wanted to talk about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Uh, it wasn't just that they wanted to project this image of Israel as a state that you don't want to mess with, but it had to do with this idea that they wanted to emphasize this vision of, of Jews in the Holocaust fighting back against the Nazis. And this was the one example that they could really look to. It also has to do with the Eastern European-centric component of their entire outlook, which is to say that, that this is a text from Morocco. Uh, if we're talking about Moroccan Jews in the state of Israel, in, in the first decades of the state, that they're really a, an oppressed minority in many ways. They are being kind of forced to assimilate into an Ashkenazi-dominated Jewish culture. People are being asked to change their names. Their history is not being talked about. So there's so much going on here in terms of you're talking about Israel. It, it goes far beyond that. You know, it was just to say that in, in America as well, Jewish institutions, the institutionalized Jewish world, really is dominated by Ashkenazi Jews in America. If I could just cut in for one moment, just to sort of emphasize a point you just made. So all of these North African Jews that arrive in Israel, 50s, 60s. So imagine a Jew in Tunisia, right? The Nazi soldiers didn't get everywhere in North Africa, but they were in Tunisia. You know, they were in Tunisia for half a year. We know of SS soldiers murdering to death Jews in town. Imagine a Jew from Tunisia that comes to Israel, and what happens? He is told, it's not your story. It's not your story. It's our story. The ramifications. 
what is he then meant or she meant to tell their, their children in terms of beyond this transformation, when you think about the actual person, right? Coming on the Holocaust Day, telling a story and it's pushed aside saying, research, we're focusing on Europe. The story, it's completely what you're saying. I think it's spot on. Exactly. And I think that like part of what, what we're talking about here is the way in which the diverse narratives of Jewish history are something that we need to talk about more, you know, looking beyond Germany, looking beyond Eastern Europe, again, to some extent, also looking beyond Spain. We need to look at Jews in other parts of the world that we are not talking about as much. And I think that this is a major project within Jewish studies, especially in North America. Uh, you can speak more about that in terms of what's going on in Israel right now. But I think that the growing area of the study of Middle East and North Africa in modern Jewish studies is huge. Uh, and that definitely see this publication as part of that entire phenomenon, especially in the context of the Holocaust, where I could think of a number of colleagues of mine who are looking at the Holocaust outside of Europe. And this is a really, really important thing for us to think about in a number of different ways. One more example, you know, and this is, again, just sort of anecdote in terms of growing up in a society in Israel, right? So you study about modern Jewish history, and there are two pages in modern Jewish history that you learn about Ethiopian Jewry. And what are you taught about Ethiopian Jewry in these two pages? About the military operations, that you know, the Mossad, and how the state of Israel brought Ethiopian Jewry here. Now, that's important. It's fascinating. But it's interesting that if you have a two-page screen time and the choice is to talk about how Jews in Ethiopia were brought, and you don't have a sentence about the unique cultural heritage of Jews in Ethiopia, then that's very telling. And I think we're at a point now, as you say, both you know, academically, but also in terms of you know, outside of the academic world. I know in Israel, at least, where those things are starting to change, where there is more of an interest. Uh, and definitely, I, I definitely see the Hitler Haggadah. Be, like I said, if it was published 20 years ago, I think it would have been different. Yes. So I want to go back to something that you said just a moment ago, uh, which is that you talked about a way in which uh, somebody from Tunisia or, or somewhere else that, that really isn't part of the main story of the Holocaust, as it is often told, especially in the public realm, you know, they might be told, well, this isn't your story, right? You know, the Holocaust is quote unquote, not your story. And that this is a major issue. Right. But what's interesting about that is that the Passover story, it's a universal Jewish story. Now, it's not particularly historical in as much as we have no historical or archaeological evidence for anything that is in the Bible, um, you know, but especially in, in, in this particular instance. But Jews tell the story every year and they're told to imagine as if they themselves, you know, you know had been uh, slaves in Egypt and had been redeemed and freed, liberated. So, you know, what you're seeing here in terms of this particular text is the use of a universal Jewish story to insert themselves into this narrative that, as you said, many people have been told, well, this is not your story because you're not Eastern European. Uh, and so I think that's a very interesting aspect to think about, you know, this tension between the claims that certain people might make that, that certain stories of Jewish history are exclusive, right? And then the ways in which elements of Jewish culture, of Jewish religion, you know, are fundamentally universal in terms of the fact that all Jews are called upon to look at themselves, you know, as if they had been freed from Egypt. And in that sense, what I'd like to add, or one claim that could and should be made, is that contrary to the sort of Eurocentric Ashkenazi dictating one kind of story, I would claim that in the case in North Africa, it is that that was never the case. I'll give you one example. A current piece that I'm now working on translating, just to sort of understand, is a lament, right? A little kina written in 1903 in Tunisia, right? Eight pages in Judo-Arabic as well. 
as a result of the Kishinev pogrom. Now imagine that. You're in Tunisia. You're in Jerba. You're living miles away. You've heard on the news what has happened, the horrific pogroms in Kishinev, and you're writing one of the most sacred forms of song. And this lament, by the way, connects between times where you were, in, you were able to go to casinos and theaters in Kishinev, connecting these horrific pogroms to, guess what? The destruction of the Holy Temple. The claim is that contrary to the Ashkenazi one form, one of the things that I found fascinating and very interesting and characteristic of, of North African Jewish literature, and specifically in the modern era, is this idea that there isn't one narrative. In many cases, you see there's more of a sense of a solidarity, and I think that's also part of what the Hitler Haggadah does about. You have a, a Jew living in Morocco whose life has completely changed, but he is worried just as much about what's happening to his brethren, his Ashkenazi brethren, who he doesn't see as a sort of, you know, my story as opposed to your story, but it's our story. And, and this lament about the Kishinev pogrom shows that this goes pre-World War II, pre-World War I. It's part and parcel of what I see to be one of the characteristics of the way North African Jews, if I can sort of speak generally for a moment, view a Jewish narrative and memory. So one of the things that we've been talking about has been the question of the relationship between historical events and historical memory, you know, and the way in which ritual, something like the Passover Seder, can play a part in the construction of historical memory. Do you maybe want to say something a bit more broadly about what the Hitler Haggadah teaches us about this process of making meaning out of history? in Jewish culture and the way in which a holiday like Passover, for, for instance, or even we could talk about Purim or any number of, of other holidays have played a role in the construction of memory about the past. I would love if you can say a bit more about what we see in this particular text that illuminates those broader issues. This isn't new, but the idea that we are meant to be telling a story on Passover, the story of the Jewish people, right? It's in fact a commandment. You are meant to tell the story to your children, right? It's not something that's just a nice to have. Part of the ceremony is telling a story. It's the one night where you have to tell a story. There is no other night like this. And so it's easy to see how throughout time, there has become what many of us experience as coming to a seder where everyone, you know, my father likes the Maharal Haggadah, the Soloveitchik's take, Ovadia Yosef, and so on and so forth. And in that sense, I think, you know, if I go Kabbalistic for a moment, I think, or, or Lurianic, part of what the Hitler Haggadah can perform is, is a kind of tikkun a sort of a, a fix in that if we're meant to be telling a story, one of the things today we can be asking is what elements of the story are we not aware about? What elements of the story can make our story more complete? What are we missing? And in that sense, you know, if we can say for a moment that it happens to be a piece that was written in the Holocaust, but it's an example of a part of our narrative, which, which we don't know much about. And it's an opportunity to go to, you know, areas out of our comfort zone. Well, we're used to bringing stories and books and Haggadot or pieces where we come from, whether it's Australia, America. And I think in that sense, the Hitler Haggadah is an opportunity to try and tell a story or, or learn about a story that's beyond our comfort zone. I think that there is this element where the Passover Seder um, has been such a malleable ritual, such a malleable text. On the one hand, there are traditional aspects that we see repeated in versions of the texts over the centuries, but people also are making changes to the text to suit themselves, whether we're talking about changing the four sons to the four children, 
right? Or anything else. You know, and today often people use a supplement to the Haggadah, you know, the, a supplement to the Passover Seder. In fact, there are a lot of Jewish organizations that actually produce a supplement every year. They want to give people an extra page or something that they can they can talk about something. They want to insert themselves and, and their key issues into the Passover Seder. So how is this a useful means for Jews to make sense of their world? In this particular context, you can see you know, the attempt of this anonymous author to try to tell about his or her own experience through the, the Passover Seder story. Exactly. I think specifically because this is an anonymous author, but ultimately our author isn't trying to write a history book. He's trying to create his own literary work and to tell a story. He's doing something that is different in that he's very much like these supplements. He's very modern in that sense, beyond, you know, even postmodern, because he's coming and saying, I'm calling it a Haggadah. For me, this is my Haggadah. My Haggadah is my story. It's the way I see things. And in that sense, I think there's also, it's inspirational. You know, one of the things that happened to me when I read this text, you know, it makes you think about all the Passovers that you read other Haggadot. I at least don't often find or have found that you try and sort of see where's your story fit in. You're usually either intellectually interested in in other Haggadot, other viewpoints, but here you have an example of a sort of, you know, a, a kind of supplement, pre-supplement era where you have a, a, a narrator saying, I'm going to do my own thing. And you know what? It could even be that the goal of the author, you know, this is just a hypothesis. Part of it might have been a story to sort of learn something about North African Jewry, about the Holocaust, but also be inspired that, you know, use the seder to be telling your story and how you view things in your own time. Obviously, this is a text which was, as you've mentioned, is written before the Second World War itself is completely over. It's written in 1943, but it seems to me that it's part of a much larger tradition of Jews producing Passover texts in the aftermath of the Holocaust, celebrating liberation. So in what ways does this relate to the broader phenomenon of Jews producing Seder texts, their own version of the Haggadah, in the context of and in the aftermath? of the Holocaust, the rise of the state of Israel, uh, and so on and so forth. So I think there's like a more particular answer and then a sort of, you know, more global Jewish answer. If we look at North Africa for a moment, then the Hitler Haggadah is part of a, a literary genre. You know, you have its sister, Megillat Hitler. Megillat Hitler is written by an author that we know, Asher Hassin. He was a Hebrew teacher in Casablanca, who then moves to Israel and becomes a parliament member. Interestingly, so this is very telling in terms of the purpose of the text and what you want to try and achieve by it. Asher Hassin, when he wrote Megillat Hitler, it wasn't written in Judo-Arabic. It was written in Hebrew because he was a Hebrew teacher and he wanted people to, to learn Hebrew. But he also made it into a, a second Purim. And Megillat Hitler, which is written on an actual uh, Megillah scroll, was read in Casablanca in synagogues on a specific date to commemorate, you know, the, the Allied victory and what had happened, right? So the 10 sons of Haman suddenly become, you know, Gehring, Goebbels, whoever. But the point is that Hitler Haggadah, if we look at Morocco specifically, you have Megillat Hitler, you have Mika Mochaya Hitler, you, you have then, you know, poems, which aren't again Haggadah, but they are definitely the sort of retake and old pieces that are inspired by current events. So I think in Morocco and in North Africa in general, it's interesting that you have these sort of Hitler title pieces, and the Hitler Haggadah is sort of on the one hand part of that genre, 
But then it's also, and this, this connects to what you were saying, part of a, a genre of, you know, if the Passover Haggadah is about telling a story, then we have, for example, a Haggadah that was written by, if I'm not mistaken, Jewish soldiers, British soldiers in, in Egypt that wrote a kind of Haggadah, their take. You have, of course, all these kibbutzim, right? In the late 40s, early 50s, you, you had kibbutzim that, that were creating their own takes, telling, you know, it's, it's what's called in Hebrew, it's become this sort of genre of these uh, non-traditional, you know, untraditional Haggadot. And some of them are more amusing, but other ones are trying to sort of seriously pass on a sort of, you know, socialistic agenda. So it's, it's taking the idea of telling a story and saying, look, we have something we want to say. Interestingly, even though the Holocaust is in the outset, a lot of the focus in some of these Haggadot is how socialism can save this, you know, how this can still change, you know, as part of this, this kibbutz project in Israel, where a potential response to the Holocaust is this kibbutz project is this new vision which, you know, sort of started and then again, years later, didn't quite work in Israel. And we have these in Europe as well. You also have examples of, of Haggadot that are re- written as a result. As you mentioned with Purim, we see this in Purim as well, both with Megillah Esther, obviously because of the sort of the, the, the miracle that occurred to the Jewish people. So a lot of times the Megillah is used as a structure and other times the Haggadah is used as a structure. And in that sense, I think the Hitler Haggadah definitely fits into, on the one hand, this sort of genre of, Hitler pieces or World War II pieces that were sort of across the board. And it wasn't only in World War II, but also World War I. And as I mentioned, this lament about the Kishinev pogrom, but then it is definitely part of, of a mass spread of, or this phenomenon of texts that, that are sort of suddenly appearing out of nowhere, whether it's inspired by Kibbutzim, but the Holocaust is there in many of them. And in that sense, I think where the Hitler Haggadah is different is that it, it's before the end of the war. So it's, it's not quite sure what's going on, what's happened. But it's also very secular, like many of the other Haggadot. In Europe, I think they're less, they're less secular. You know, I think the Hitler Haggadah sort of more kind of fits in with some of the, the, the kibbutzim, non-traditional Haggadot. I think that you've touched on something really important here, which is the way in which Jewish ritual is put to use in terms of the remembering of historical events. You know, many of the Jewish holidays are actually historical in their orientation. In ancient Israel, many of the events of the year, the holidays that were connected with certain times of the year, were made into things that were about history. You know, Passover is not just a spring holiday, but it's a holiday about Exodus from Egypt. The you know, Sukkot is, is not just a, a harvest festival. It becomes, over time, uh, a holiday to commemorate the time of the Israelites, of the Hebrews, wandering through the desert. And, and Jews are reenacting their history through the celebration of these holidays. And then, of course, you look at Purim and Passover in particular, and these are, I would argue, the most historical of Jewish holidays. Both Purim and Passover celebrate events for which there is no historical evidence outside of the Bible of what took place. The story of Purim is clearly a comedy. You can understand on a basic level that this is a story, right? It's not historical events. And yet Jews look to Purim uh, throughout history as paradigmatic of their own experience. It's the same thing with, with the story of Passover, where on the one hand, it is a holiday that has no evidence that, that any of these things ever actually took place. And yet Jews are telling themselves or telling their children every year, imagine as if you yourself have been in Egypt. And then they are also transforming that into their own experiences, whatever that might be. 
And a text like the Hitler Haggadah really just illustrates this so powerfully. And it's one of many texts that we could point to that does this both in terms of Purim and in terms of Passover. Definitely. Look, going back to, you know, your fascinating point about this idea of memory and commemorating. I mean, even when we, you know, look at the Bible, the the, the idea of remembering the Sabbath, right? The first time the Jews are told to remember the Sabbath, there isn't yet a Sabbath to remember, and yet we're told to remember, right? Are we talking about remembering the primordial seventh day? So already from the outset, in the sort of first cultural book that we have, this idea of memory is clearly a very different, in my view at least, the lesson there is this idea that if you're a Jew, memory doesn't have to be something that you in your lifetime remember, but you're actually able to remember something that didn't happen in your lifetime. Because usually when we think of memory, it's remembering something that happened to us, and yet the, the Jewish act of memory enables us to go thousands of years beyond. And as you mentioned, even whether it's based on a historic event or like the parody of Megillah Esther that did or didn't happen, which even with Megillah Esther, you know, it's, it's fascinating that it's a text that, that has so many similarities to the Yosef story and the, the selling of the brothers. And it, it has so many, you know, it echoes many historic events that happened in Persia, right? Xeris and Homon, you had a battle with different gods. And Homon and Ziris and Murduch and Ashtar were the two competing parties. So even if there is a historic event, it has nothing to do with the Jewish people. But this idea of this Jewish memory, as I see it, like I said in the Bible, and remembering the first Sabbath, what is this memory? It, it suddenly allows you to remember things that, that you don't really remember, but it shatters out our idea of what memory means. And in that sense, I think also when we read through Hitler Haggadah, it's interesting because it does make you wonder what are the bits that are subjective and what are the bits that, that are objective? And, you know, what really happened, it didn't happen. But then when we think of this idea of memory, it makes you think, you know, well, does that matter? And what's really going on in terms of, you know, what we're putting inside and what the sort of practice of remembering is about? Part of what we're seeing here in this text is the way in which holidays and rituals and, and texts are part of the continual construction of memory. The person who wrote this text wanted people to remember what their experience had been like in the course of the years of the Second World War. You yourself also, in the process of editing and producing this text in its current form, also, as we've talked about, are deeply invested in wanting people to remember about the events of the Holocaust in North Africa as well. For sure. There's a difference between pieces that you write and pieces that you write and you want to publish. And the author of the Hitler Haggadah, probably decided that he wanted to remain anonymous, but there is no doubt that he wanted this published, and it was published. Uh, it was published, but like many such texts, it sort of, you know, is on the verge of, of entering into the dustbin of history. When I read this text and realized that I wanted to to remember events in North Africa and the Holocaust as well, and, and then through, you know, the, the Israeli publication with Mineged, and through David V, you know, and through Printer Craft, right, the virtue of the publisher beyond the editorial practice of the text, is that it, it suddenly enables, becomes a vehicle that enables uh, potentially a mass of people to want to remember this part of the narrative and this, this specific piece of history as well. So, you know, I want to thank you. This has been like a really, really fascinating conversation about what I think is a tremendously exciting historical text. As you mentioned at the beginning, the title is, is it just draws you in because you think like, who's using such a title? Associating it such a canonical Jewish text, if you might call it that, of, of the Haggadah, with the greatest enemy of the Jews in modern times. 
But I think that Beyond the Title is just such a fascinating text, and I hope that people will check it out. Uh, thank you so much for sharing it with us, and also by sharing you know, so much of your perspective on it uh, on this podcast as well. Likewise, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening to this episode with Johnny Schnitzer. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.